there you are. At this time, <clears throat> Art Williams will come with split sermon entitled to the church, I'm sorry, conformed to the image. Jesus said to the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2.9, I know your works, tribulation, poverty, and attacks of Satan. The description provided here is one that for the people that experienced it at the time was probably full of fear, anxiety, stress, concern about oneself and one's loved ones. And there's no mention of a remedy for the tribulation, poverty, or the satanic attacks. He goes on to say with the Smyrna church that one that overcomes a situation will not be hurt by the second death. By implication, then, one does not, does not, that does not overcome is at risk of being, not being in the kingdom. And he provides for them here his expectation for them, that he expects that they can and are able to deal with that situation. So it seems like a tough situation to have to experience and endure. It seems from most standards when we talk about God and his love that this is something that he would not necessarily uh, put us into or want us to experience or to endure. Why would he ever leave them in this situation? But on the other hand, is the situation any more difficult than what our Savior suffered. And did he really leave them in the situation, as I said earlier? I can't even begin to assume or understand adequately what it would be like to be in that situation, you know, to be under that kind of persecution, poverty, and tribulation, or subsequently with the uh, persecution by the Roman Empire against Christians or even the persecution of the Jews by Nazi Germany. I've never experienced a life-threatening situation or that kind of poverty or tribulation. I've had some tribulations of my own making that weren't anywhere as near this level of severity. And while he leaves them in this physical situation, he does not abandon them. And we'll see through this message that he has given them and us the tools and the facility to successfully deal with the situation of poverty, tribulation, and attacks from Satan. However, It's their responsibilities, and it is our responsibility to learn what the tools are, to learn what the facilities are that he has provided us, and to pick up those tools and apprehend the facilities that he's made available and to use them. And this is part, probably the most difficult part, because these tools are spiritual. These facilities are spiritual. He tells us in Romans 8, 29, that he has given us to the likeness of his son. In Romans 8.29 he says, 
for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among the brethren. Predestination is Strong's number 4309, meaning determined before, or determined beforehand. So this conforming to the image of his son, a facility by which we can successfully navigate the situations that we have in life, and the success is in the eyes of God, not in the eyes of man. And it's the opportunity, the experience in our lives, are the opportunity to learn of him and his ways and to apply them. And it starts with repentance, and it ends with eternal life to which there is no end. We're given in Romans 12 two further instruction in how to accomplish this transformation, whereby we go from being conformed to this world to being conformed to the image of his Son. In Romans 12, 2, it says, And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Paul tells us that the transformation occurs with the renewing of our mind. He also tells us something else here. He tells us that with the renewing of our mind, it will facilitate us to prove the good, acceptable will of God. From this, we can conclude that his will is not always readily distinguishable and that God's will is not always fulfilled. In Proverbs 23, 7, it says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And as a person, we start out as a baby. And as a baby, we are about as fleshly-minded as we probably could ever be. We take our children to the carnival and they want to ride a pony or the merry-go-round and at the end of the day, time to go home. And the child says, I want to go ride the ponies! And before you know it, off they go. Get back here, we're going home. <laughs> but we become adults and when we become adults, we become a little bit more sophisticated at doing the same thing. <laughs> Paul talks about this transition in Ephesians 4. I want to read it all. It's 11 verses here because it, it's, such, it's so descriptive of, of life. Starting in verse 21, Ephesians 4. If indeed you have heard him, being Jesus, and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, put away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down upon your wrath, nor give place to the devil. 
Let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. So this is the task set before us to accomplish and do this, and it's only part of it, it's not the entirety. It is a giant task, and we accomplish it through and by the transformation, by the renewing of the mind. It begins with the mind. There are many factors that shape and form us into what we actually are versus who we think we are versus what others think we are versus him who knows exactly what we really are and what he wants us to become. I've got a, an illustration, it's kind of one of my favorites. I have so many favorites, I don't know, maybe it's just... Second Kings, chapter 5, verse 1 through 15. <clears throat> this illustrates how it is that who we think we are and what we think we are comes into play in our life and is played out. It's the story of a Syrian general who had already won a battle against Israel, but he was a leper. And he has a little captive Israeli girl with him that they got on a raid. And so let's start the story in verse 1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. The master, of course, is the king. Here is the expectation. Here is what was given in his mind by the king, that he is a great and honorable man in the eyes of a king. So he believes that he is a great and honorable man. We'll see that play out. It comes into play later. And the Syrians had gone out on raids, and had, verse 2, and the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive girl, a captive young girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of the leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, that is the king, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come on to thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to you, 
that you may recover him from his leprosy. And it came to pass, came to happen, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he rent his clothing and said, Am I God to kill and make alive? That this man does that he sends to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. This is interesting because here there's a young Israeli girl that knew the prophet was there that could heal the king or the, the commander of the army. But the king of Israel didn't even think of him. He thinks and judges presumptuously. He's setting up a situation so he can declare war against him. And so he wants to take action to act accordingly. But what happens is, Elisha, the man of God, who heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothing, and that was a custom of the time, that he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariots and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. So there he is. He arrives at Elisha's house and he probably sends one of his servants up to knock on the door. And he's standing outside. And what does Elisha do? He sends his page boy out to him and says, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. Naaman was furious. You don't even come out to see me? I'm a great and honorable man. You can't treat me like this. I'm the king's servant. Naaman, verse 11, Naaman became furious and, away, and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. He expected great pomp and circumstance because that's what great men get, pomp and circumstance. But it didn't happen. But you see, he expected that because that's who he thought he was. That's in his mind who he was. And it was encouraged by the king. He goes on in verse 12. Are not the Abnaha and the Fapar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near to him and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? Of course he would have. Because that fits into his psyche, who he thinks he is. But the wisdom of his servants changed his mind. And continuing, how much more then, when he says to you, wash and be clean? 
So in verse 14, so he went down and he dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. And he offers him a gift, and the story continues on after that, but that's as far as I want to go with it, because it illustrates how what's in our minds, who we think we are, what we think we are, impacts how we act and how we make our decisions. And that's part of the transformation in the renewing of the mind. Paul tells us that in the renewing of the mind, we can get to come to prove the good and acceptable will of God. God's will is not always readily distinguishable, and it's not always fulfilled. In Proverbs 23, 7, he says, For as he thinks in his heart, so he is. Oh my, I'm wrong page. I'm at the top of page two. I want to be at the bottom of page two here. I'm repeating myself. For after the king got, or the commander got healed, and through all of this, we can come to see the inadequacies of his approach, his expecting the pomp and circumstance. We can come to see the need for the Redeemer. And it begins with repentance, and it ends with being in the kingdom of God. Second Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slack, but long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. It's an example of God's, where God's will is not always fulfilled because indeed we do know while he is willing that none should perish, there are going to be some that indeed will. The transformation by the renewing of the mind is the apprehension of a spiritual mindset. It's a, it's, a, it's a study task. It's a prayer task. Colossians 3, 2, Paul writes, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Wow. That's step one. It's a tough one. It's probably a lot easier back in the days of Paul to do it then than it is to do it now because we have so many distractions. If you lived in the country during the time of Paul, your main effort was to survival needs, food, water, take care of the animals, harvest the crops, plant the crops. If you live in the city, you might have a few more things to do. Maybe there was a play, you go to the Coliseum or whatever they happened to have in the city that you lived in. The distractions that we have in our society today, politics, economics, TV, radio, internet, computers, video, video games, computer games, toys on every level, from game boxes in our house to boats, yachts, from propeller-driven aircraft to jet aircraft owned by you know, the, those that have the money, drones, you know, so we can send our drones inside the windows of our neighbors and spy out what they're doing. You know, I mean, it's getting ridiculous. 
sports information, gathering just information in general. I, I have fallen into that. I, I'm like a runaway computer sometimes. I go on the internet and I start generating this data and generating this data. Travel. All can be distractions from that which is the most important thing, which is keeping our mind on the things above. We have personal hopes and dreams, goals, physical, hopefully spiritual too. Probably both, and that's okay. After all, we're physical beings, and he made us with physical desires, and he expects us to fulfill those things. But to have him been subservient to the primary spiritual goals and to use those spiritual principles in attaining our physical hopes, dreams, and goals. And by setting our minds on the things above and seeking the kingdom of God by applying his teachings and principles, living our physical life, using these principles, we'll inculcate into our minds the spiritual principles in his love and we'll cast out the fear and we will grow faith. It is in this manner that the Smyrna church has the ability to endure what would otherwise perhaps be the unendurable. In Philippians 2.5 he says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ there are some steps whereby we can facilitate this happening. And one is meditation. Another one is selecting your path in life that is in accordance with his will and his goals. And the, th and the third one is seeking him in each step along the path. In Psalms 1, verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord in his law does he meditate day and night. Our distractions of the day can keep us from doing meditation on his law. And part of the meditation and why to meditate is to see the application, to learn what is the application. It's not just intellectually to learn the law of God says this or that or the other thing. I heard a man say one time, there's no gray sections, there's nothing gray in the Bible, everything's black and white. Well, it's not that way. If you believe that, then you go into, I think it's, I don't have the scriptures down, you go into the book of Psalms where it says, answer a man according to his folly, answer a fool according to his folly. The very next scripture says, don't answer a man according to his folly. Massive contradiction, isn't it? How can you say, answer him according to his folly and then don't answer it? Because you have to determine who the person is you're dealing with and how you respond to him. And that's what this is all about. There are many, many variable circumstances that we're in. And being able to handle them properly is to rely on his principles. Even if we don't really understand what in the world is going on behind the scenes. You know, for example, maybe you have a house that you want to sell. And this is just an illustration of what I'm trying to get at here. You have your house up for sale, and you put it up for sale, and it doesn't sell, and it doesn't sell, and it doesn't sell, and you try this, this, this real estate agent and that real estate agent, you lower the price, two years go by, you still haven't sold the house, you pray about it, you raise the price back up to where it was originally, a person comes in and says, I want your house, I just moved in the area, God has gotten me a job down here, maybe God was saving that house for that person, so you wait on him. You know, just because you have your immediate goal, I want it, I want it now. Maybe he's got a bigger plan that involves other people. And you're just a cog. You're just a cog along the way in there. 
So be patient. Be patient. In Psalms 77, 12, it says, I will meditate on all thy work and talk of thy doings. What are the works of God? Creation, plants, animals, the solar system, events in history, the Old Testament. There are so many lessons in the Old Testament. It says it's written for our example. We went through just, just one example here with the Syrian, the Syrian commander. Psalms 119, verse 15. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. How to apply them in my life situations. And some of them are stressful. The hardest part is probably figuring out how to apply it. You know, you, you, you get a... We'll get to the to Beatitudes perhaps here in a little bit and if I don't run out of time. How do you be a peacemaker? One of the, it's one of the to Beatitudes. It says be peaceable, be a peacemaker. You might have had the experience where you tried to be a peacemaker and you end up being a victim because you've got a brother over here and a brother over here and no, we got a right to fight this out and nobody's going to stop us. And so you try to be a peacemaker and you end up being a victim. So it's, it, you know... I was joking around with somebody here the other night that I've never had very few opportunities to try to be a peacemaker. I guess I have to start a war somewhere so I can get the experience, you know. Psalm 143, verse 5. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works, I muse on the works of your hands. Again, examples of the Old Testament. And we got some, uh, we got some encouragement from Paul in Philippians 4, verse 8. He says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, is there any virtue, is there anything praiseworthy? Meditate on these things. There's an instruction on what to meditate for, especially uh, the more severe the circumstances. Focus on the best outcome there is. And there's, I, I, when I was a young person, David used to be my hero in the Bible. But as I got older, I have two other heroes. Well, maybe three. Esther, queen. Queen, sitting in the throne, and she's ready as she walks in to, to see the king, which was against the law, and she says, if I die, I die. Ready to give it all up. Queen, doesn't mean anything to me. Stephen, stoned, his last breath. Forgive them, Lord, they do not know what they do. Admiral qualities. And of course, they, uh, Daniel and his three friends, when, I came, when his three friends were ready to be thrown in the furnace, he didn't care what the king said. That's the way it'll be. So the next thing is planning your path and your steps. And I'm not going to be able to get through all of this. I'm not going to go through the red light like I did last time. Got, got myself a traffic ticket for not really. I was teasing Rick earlier about that. But plan, plan your path and your steps in your, in your life. 
what you're going to do, who your friends are, where you're going, when you're going to do it. Plan it out. And seek him. He says in Psalm 119, verse 2, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. The spiritual goals, the to be attitudes of Matthew 5, these are, these are spiritual principles that we're supposed to be the personification of not just quote, act peaceably or undertake to be an action that would create peace but actually be the personification of poor in spirit, meek, pure in heart, peacemaker. God is grooming you to be a ruler in his kingdom during the millennium. The striving is to become conformed to the image of his son that will facilitate you to think as he thinks, to act as he would act, to handle a situation as he would handle it. Remember the Smyrna church. They can overcome the situation, the poverty, the tribulation, the devil's attacks by the transforming and the re by the renewing of the mind. John 14:27 says, "Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives" but I give you. Let not your heart be troubled. Let it not be afraid. That's, an, that's a positive action. You feel fear? You feel trouble in your heart? He says, don't let it be that way. Get rid of it. On your knees, go before him and talk to him about it. 2 Timothy 1.7 God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He will guide you in how to handle that in your situations that you're in. And Romans 12.12 Rejoice in hope patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. And finally, in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he says, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you.